Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Adam Foss. Adam is a world-class hunter who's transformed his passion for wildlife and wild places into a rewarding career in filmmaking and photography. Adam has been obsessed with wilderness adventure for practically his entire life. At age 24, he was the youngest person to take all four species of North American sheep with a bow, an amazing achievement for a hunter of any age. But despite this accomplishment and others, Adam is much more focused on the process of the hunt spending long, challenging days in the mountains, forming long-lasting friendships, stewarding public lands, and conserving legendary big-game species. Adam was born in the Canadian Rockies and spent his youth bow hunting with his father and older brother. As he grew older, his hunting trips expanded in geography and complexity, and he has now hunted many of the world's wildest places or some of the most renowned big game. Adam initially considered a career in wildlife biology, but decided to go the creative route instead. He and his wife are now the owners of Foss Media, a company that creates film and photography for some of the most iconic outdoor brands today. As you'll hear, Adam is passionate about wildlife storytelling and conservation, but he's equally humble, grounded, and grateful to be doing what he loves on a daily basis. Adam and I caught up over Skype as he and his wife are currently moving around Canada and the American West working on creative projects. We had a fun conversation and managed to cover a lot in just over an hour. We discussed Adam's childhood in Canada and the lessons he learned from hunting with his father and brother. We chatted about how Adam values the process of hunting over the end goal of taking an animal, and we discussed our shared theory that hunting taps into something primal in our human DNA. We talked in detail about conservation, specifically the role that public lands play in hunting in both the United States and Canada. Adam also offers some wise advice to those who want to learn to hunt but may not have a long-standing connection to the sport. And as usual, we discuss favorite books, films, and Adam's most powerful outdoor experience. This was such a fun conversation, and it's clear that Adam has thought long and hard on many of these issues. I really enjoyed getting to know Adam, and I think you will too. When you meet somebody for the first time, and you've never met them, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer Mm -hmm. that? It's changed over the years. Um... When people ask what I do, I usually say my wife and I are owners and operators of a production company that is primarily based in film, short film for hunting and fishing brands in the outdoor space, and as well as uh, still photography uh, for this, for the same kind of clients. And um, you know, I, I think we kind of pride ourselves on on being content creators, but also you know, content strategists, and and because we've worked in um, the area for, for, you know, a number of years and with a, a lot of really cool brands that have evolved and sort of pushed the envelope of, of what, um, y- you know, the, the activity of hunting and fishing and what it means to be outdoors focused and, you know, even issues like conservation and public land and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we kind of like to think of ourselves as on the forefront of that as well. So sort of strategizing with brands to help tell those stories that uh, are going to be impactful um, and, and on point with, 
you know, where, where their company's headed and also, you know, lining up our own values with those um, unique stories that, uh, you know, we're really lucky that we get to sink our teeth into things that matter to us. And, and uh, fortunately, there's, there's companies out there that share the same values and we can kind of work together to craft, um, you know, whether it's a film project or a photography project, uh, you know, r- written copy or whatever it is, um, we can kind of craft along with them to create something pretty special and, and impactful. Um, and usually when I answer that question, it's hopefully less than, you know, the 90 seconds it took me um, <laughs> to spit that out. But, you know, I, I think for us, it's it's just about um, being more than just pressing the red button on the camera and delivering a project. It's, it's you know, we kind of get pretty invested in whether it's the characters that we're creating these films around, you know, in their lives or, you know, with the people that, that um, are pushing the direction of the brand. Like we get, we sink our teeth in pretty good and we like to have that back end um, of, of a project to be successful. It's got to have the, um, you know, the distribution and the thought behind, you know, what this is going to be and where it's going to go. And, you know, so anyone can sort of throw, not anyone, but the space is, has evolved to, there's a lot of really talented creators out there. And, and I would throw my hand up in the air and say, you know, we're in the mix, but there's lots of people that are a lot better than us. And I know that, that, you know, can technically shoot, um, great stuff and, and put, you know, phenomenal stories together, beautifully written and, and shot. But I think, um, you know, our niche is, is knowing the space really well, um, knowing what's authentic, knowing what, cranks the gears of, of people like us um who are you know for lack of a better word sort of die hard hardcore you know hunters that that uh are you know are really fueled by this stuff it's 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 something that uh you know i think that i can maybe pride myself to think like the way that i think what i think is impactful and meaningful um then, then hopefully other other hunters out there will share the same feeling yeah. And so, yeah, we try to pride ourselves on, on having that, um, experience in, um, you know, the, the style of, of media that we're creating and, uh, as well as, as hopefully being able to create, um, quality content as well. Yeah. Well, that all makes sense. And, you know, when I watch some of your films, you know, on your website, it, it definitely shines through and it's very, very clear from looking at those films that they're made and created by somebody who knows what they're doing. And so I want to talk a lot about your background as a hunter, because you've, you've, you know, established quite a resume in, in a relatively short period of time. When I see what you've done, I'm like, I, I just turned 40. I'm like, man, I hadn't done a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so could you just talk a little bit about, about your kind of life as a hunter, maybe, maybe start with where you grew up. Cause I know you had an interesting upbringing kind of surrounded by the outdoors. Can you just talk about that and then kind of lead us through your, your career as a hunter? Yeah, you bet. So I grew up West of Calgary, Alberta, which is, uh, one of the bigger cities in, in Alberta. Um, I grew up in a town called Cochrane and it was about 12,000 people at the time. And, um, we grew up on, on an acreage with, white-tailed deer ha- hanging around on the forest, um, you know, that you can see right outside the window. We had a tree stand, I think, probably 100 yards from our house that mm-hmm. either me, my brother, or my dad killed a buck or a doe or both out of um, every year as kids. And so my dad was a pretty um, prominent, you know, bow hunting was just a prominent part of his life. He just, you know, there was, a, there was a great opportunity around the city of Calgary. It's an archery-only 
zone. Um, and you know, there's great access to, to hunting, um, in the province of Alberta, you can get a mule deer tag, a whitetail tag. A lot of the times moose and elk are over the counter. You can hunt bighorn sheep, um, in the Rocky mountains every year in an archery only zone, as well as you can hunt with a bow in the rifle zones, um, up until the end of October. And so there's a lot of hunting just, you know, within a two hour circle of where I grew up and, you know, really lucky and fortunate to be able to take advantage of some of those those opportunities and and it quickly evolved into the mountains um and i guess what i mean by that is um the first backpack sheep hunt that i went on i remember i was you know 14 years old in the rockies my dad i think it was the first weekend of september i was 14 years old and threw all our crap on our back and you know away we went and uh just the the challenge and and the place that we got to go um you know i always say that hunting is is like a vehicle you know mm-hmm. it kind of takes you to these places that you wouldn't necessarily always go you know i also like to hike with my wife and um you know mountain bike and cross-country skiing do, do other stuff outside but hunting seems to have a knack for taking you physically and and mentally to places that you just wouldn't normally go as a as a normal outdoor enthusiast and so yeah. Um, that part of it quickly became, um, a big part of my life and, and, you know, a big part of our family too. So I have an older brother, Cameron, who's two years older and like any kid, you know, you kind of grow up wanting to be like like your dad and your brother. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they were always hunting, they were hunting together. I was hunting with them and, um, it it just like, I never really questioned it. It wasn't really a question of whether or not I was going to do it. And, and keep in mind, I wasn't, you know, forced into it by any means. I just kind of wanted to be those guys and so um they were great role models um and i never i never questioned you know whether i was going to do it um and and to what level i was going to do it i just followed those guys along and they sort of forged the path uh you know metaphorically and and quite literally just following their bootsteps trying to keep up to them um while carrying a pack and trying not to pass out um (laughs) and so that's how I got started and then, uh, just, just continued doing it. Um, and I, I went to university out in, in British Columbia. So the West coast, um, in Vancouver and, uh, great hunting opportunity in that province as well. And so had the chance to do some, some awesome, some awesome mountain hunts in that province. And, um, really my dad was just doing, you know, he was coming into a place with his life, um, you know, both having the time and resources to be able to, to go on, um, you know, more and more hunts that, uh, he wasn't able to go on as a younger man and, and, uh, able to tag along with him, you know, to hunt places like the Northwest Territories and the Yukon, um, for doll sheep and mountain caribou and, and, uh, and then evolved into, um, where I was able to kind of combine, you know, a passion for, for hunting hunting with a passion for film and photography and uh and start this little fledgling career um with a guy named mark seacat at his company seacat creative back in 2011 and so was after that for about six years and that took me again just really lucky you know life is kind of all about timing it took me um all, all over the world into some you know, awesome locations, um, to hunt myself and also to either shoot photos or 
or a film and you know really thankful for that opportunity that it's led me to where I am today and then over the last year um, my wife Frankie and I have been at it um, off on our own and, and and doing the same sort of stuff with a little bit of a twist um, you know I grew up um, always thinking that I could hopefully be able to find a way to work um, outside and and with either animals or you know landscapes that I loved and so I studied environmental science thinking I would maybe go the acad- academia route mm-hmm. which I quickly learned um, that well, you know, maybe it wasn't the route that I wanted to go. It's just, um, you become so focused in a particular area. It's hard to, I think I, I mean, like any kid born in the eighties, I guess, um, sort of a mild dose of ADHD and like to bounce around and, um, you know, keep, um, yeah, keep things interesting. So I think that I, I didn't necessarily want to focus on, on such a particular area, um, you know, in academia, whether that was, you know, a undergrad master's PhD and go that route. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to bring it back where I'm heading with this is to bring it back kind of full circle. Um, we've been able to sort of line up our passions and some of my, you know, educational background and, you know, just personal interest really, and get involved in some conservation organizations like the wild sheep foundation and the Rocky Mountain goat Alliance and do, you know, projects, um, for those organizations and, and others and really find it to be quite, exciting and fulfilling and that be you know kind of the 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 cherry on top um that that, uh i've just been so lucky to be able to be a part of these things and uh and and do projects i thought um you know maybe one day i would get to be a part of if i you know for example became a you know bighorn sheep biologist or something after you know many many years of schooling and experience that I, i get to be a part of um, on the, on the media side. And so, um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, can't say enough things about, uh, all the great people that have led me to where I am and opportunities they've given me and great organizations that I've got to work with that, uh, kind of have led me down that path to be where I am today. Yeah, that, that's all great. And there's so many things you said in there that I want to ask follow-up questions on. The first one is you mentioned, you mentioned your dad and your, and your brother and the influence they had on you. If you looking back on all those early hunt trips with your dad, um, is there any one or two lessons that that you learned from your dad as a as a young hunter that have kind of stuck with you or shaped your perspective on on hunting um, for your for the rest of your life? Can you think back any any specific thing comes to mind? Any lessons? I think that the thing that the thing that um, probably would stand out and I'm trying to synthesize it in a, in a tightly woven package that, uh, it could be put on a bumper sticker or something, which I don't know if I can do. No, you can, you can um, ramble for hours on the podcast <laughs> if you want. So just, just let it rip. <laughs> I'm kind of self interviewing myself. I feel like, um, <laughs> that's great. Um, you know, I, I, I think I, if I had to say it'd be around the concept of, of, of bow hunting being such a low, um, you know, success rate activity. And by success, I mean, you know, actually punching your tag and, and harvesting an animal. Right. Yep. And just embracing the fact that, you know, each day you're going to unzip the tent, you're going to hunt as hard as you can. Um, you're going to go over the next mountain. You're going to keep putting one foot after the other. And that, that, that success is, is just a tiny, tiny part of it. And, um, so I think that 
you know, knowing that all these things have to go right. Um, you have to have every star line up. You have to get lucky. You have to get the wind right. The animal has to not see you. You have to make the shot. Um, and, and he was really good at that. Um, and he was really good at, at breaking things down into kind of manageable chunks, so to speak. Um, so whether that would be like a seven to 10 day hunt, um, or even a three day hunt and just saying, okay, I got a three day hunt. I'm going to bust out of work. I got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I'm going to say, okay, here's the plan. Friday morning, we're getting up. We're going to go here. We're going to glass for a few hours and then we're going to hit our next spot and we're going to hit our next spot. And having that, that mental fortitude, it sounds really simple. Um, but it kind of goes a long way. And some of the best hunters that have gotten to know have kind of confirmed this, that, that you have this plan and of course it's going to change a hundred times. Right. But the fact that you have a plan, you're working within, um, this, this sort of, you know, game plan that you've drawn up and you can keep yourself, you can keep yourself in the game. You can keep saying, okay, well, if I don't see anything here, I'm going here. If this doesn't work out, I'm going here. If I get weathered in, I'm hunkering down. Um, and you can just sort of mechanically move through the hunt because it is such a journey and, Mm -hmm you need to be out there to get lucky and you need to be out there to have all the stars line up. And so he was really good at breaking those down. I know he always said, you know, a 10 day hunt, you're going to lose a day to weather, right? Always in the mountains, at least. So you got three, three day hunts. Now you have a three day hunt and you, it's just really manageable to just think about, okay, three days at a time. Okay. And not sort of ride the roller coaster of, Oh God, we, you know, we found a huge ram. Okay. No, then we lost him. Oh man, this is the worst. This is the worst hunt ever. Or we haven't seen anything. And then we see something and then the weather rolls in, um, and riding those up and ups and downs. And so he always said, you know, if you can hunt as hard on the first day of a hunt, um, you know, if you can hunt as hard on that day as you know, you do on your last day, and if you can just kind of consistently keep hunting hard all the way through, um, you know, things are going to line up and just knowing that, that that's how bow hunting is and just embracing that, you know, sort of quest. And I think you can think about that on a short hunt, a medium hunt, a long hunt, or, you know, really in life and, um, over the number of years, you know, maybe you think about hunting bighorn sheep with your bow and you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try and dedicate, you know, next 10 years of my life to this, um, or have it be a significant part of my life. And so a lot of people, the old time sheep hunters say, you know, the year you start bow hunting sheep is the year your ram is born. Um, (laughs) and if you're killing a, you know, eight to 10 year old ram, and you start hunting it, um, you know, it might be eight to 10 years. And that's very, um, I think that's an interesting way to think about it and know that this is just a long-term quest. And, um, you know, we kind of live in this society of instant gratification and, and access to information is, is it's so available and we see people being so successful, you know, relatively, um, to, 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 um, you know, I guess what I'm driving at is you see somebody, on social media that's been lucky enough to harvest this animal, you see the, the kill photo, but you don't see everything that went into it or how many times they failed, how many years they have of, of, you know, not filling that tag. And so, mm-hmm. um, it's so, I think, you know, it's just trying to, you know, ground yourself in, in this, Hey, this is a quest. This is a long-term quest and you're doing it for, you know, your own personal reason. And, um, you know, that mental fortitude of riding out the highs and lows and, and, just being along um, 
for that process was something that he was really good at. And then my brother is just phenomenal at it. He's kind of taken it a step further um, and just really been able to say, okay, here's the plan. Um, and that could be a season plan. That could be, you know, he starts now pretty much, you know, and you know, we're in mid-May and, you know, thinking about new trailheads and, and just, you just, it's just really cool to see the, um, the gears turning, but, uh, it's having that long-term plan and he's really not phased by, oh, we didn't see anything here. And I've just seen a lot of, um, and I've done it myself and I, and I've totally done it myself, but you go out, you feel really good about an area, you don't see anything and you kind of get knocked down a peg. Um, and then you go somewhere else and you don't see anything again. And you, you start to, the demons start to talk to you. Sure. Um, and you know, I, I, yeah. So I guess, oh, I don't know how you'd fit that on a bumper sticker, but that's the lesson that I was sort of driving at in that you got to kind of think about it in a long-term in a long-term way, have a plan, stick to it. Um, and don't be afraid to not stick to it, but sure. that's, that's what I was driving at. How about this for a bumper sticker process over goals? How about that? Is that, is that <laughs> decent? <laughs> Cause I think it sounds, you know, it's interesting what you're saying because I know that, or I read online and it, it could be, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you were the, the youngest person to ever, um, to ever get all four species of bighorn sheep. Is that correct? Yeah, that was true at the time. Yep. And so, you know, I would think that that is, I'm sure you in a way were focused on that goal, but at the same time you had to balance out the process because even though I live in Colorado, I love to surf. And the thing about surfing is that actual riding the wave is maybe 1% of of the whole deal when you're out there. And it sounds like it's a similar deal on these hunts. I mean, you know, the, the hard work, the, the weeks and weeks or months and months of planning, the training, the all the hours and hundreds of thousands of hours you put into, you know, practicing with your bow, you know, the, the years of experience, it all comes together to that one moment when you take the shot. And that's the kind of this really minuscule part. And so, you know, it almost seems like you have to really value the process over just the end goal of, of getting your animal. And, and so my question with that is when you were, when you had gotten three out of the four species of, of sheep, did you ever just kind of get overly focused on the goal and like, all right, I just got to get this thing and get impatient or were you able at that point you had enough experience to be like, all right, I just need to focus on process, focus on process and, and it'll, it'll work out if it works out. Yeah, I think I did. And I think that it, um, yeah, I did try to to do that um, and try to level the stakes down to just, you know, this is any other hunt that, I've been, you know, lucky enough to do, um, and just go through the same, yeah, the same sort of process. And it's, it's, I guess that's one thing that I really draws me into hunting is that, um, it's a pretty level playing field. Um, and what I mean by that is you can have a lot of experience. You can have, you know, be, be able to, um, draw great tags or, or book guided hunts or, um, you know, live in a place where, 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 you know, there's great hunting opportunity, but regardless, there's a wild animal out there that's really good at staying alive, that lives in, in rugged terrain that is going to challenge you in every way, um, and has the senses that are far superior to any, any human. 
And uh, what draws me to hunting is that you can have all this experience. However, you still get out there, lace your boot up one, you know, boot at a time. And, and then y- 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 you still have to go sort of mono mono with these, with these animals. And, and most of the time you're losing. And that's what keeps me coming back. And I think keeps a lot of bow hunters coming back is that it is that fact that, you know, you're, you're not successful all the time, but that you are always pursuing it. Yeah. Well, I'm in the ranch brokerage business, and so I sell a lot of these really big, you know, private properties to some pretty wealthy people. And you know, some of them, some of these people, hopefully none of them are listening, but some of them share your your focus on the the challenge of it. And then there's another side that it's almost just like bragging rights. Like they they want to they want people to know they paid sixty grand for a, a sheep tag, and then they want to have a guy take them out there and they shoot it from uh, you know with a rifle from a far distance. And they've got, you know, they've got this, this kind of bragging rights things where it's, it sounds like with you, you are, you're trying to challenge yourself in the biggest way possible. I mean, first of all, you're doing with a bow, which is, first of all, you're, you choose to go after sheep, which is challenging. Then you choose to do that with a bow. And then you, you know, you'll go out on these long adventures that, that even if you weren't hunting, if you were just backpacking for fun, it would be a massive adventure in its own right. So where do you think that came from in your personality to to kind of go after these extremely challenging uh, take on these extreme challenges um, versus kind of doing things the easy way is that something your dad taught you or you just kind of wired that way i would probably say a little bit of both i think that i yeah i was going with earlier in the podcast talking about that following these guys' footsteps and at that age 12 13 14 15 you are so malleable in in your surroundings and and i and you know on one hand i was following in their footsteps and i was you know wanting to to live up to the example that both those guys had set and then on the other hand um it was you know dripping into my blood as well and and um you know having that having that little adventure bug bite you and have that feeling be just really hard to replicate um, hard to replicate in other activities. You just, um, you just don't get that level of uncertainty, that level of, um, challenge, that level of, yeah, I think, I think it is uncertainty. You don't know what is going to happen next. And, um, so, so I would say it has to be a pretty even split with my, um, the examples that I had in front of me and didn't really think twice about, about doing this stuff. And, and then, and then also, you know, finding it to be something that, uh, I was really interested in wanting to come back to. And speaking of influences, do you have any, you know, you, your family's obviously a big influence, but are there any people like you've read about or authors or historical figures, anybody like that, that you've have kind of influenced you? Like, for example, I'm weirdly obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt as a lot of, a lot of people out in the West are, but, um, you know, is there anybody like that in your, in your mind that, that has kind of set an example, um, even though you may not know him personally? Yeah, I think that I, I, I throw it back to even a lot of the guys that are no longer with us. Um, and, and I had, uh, and some of them are, um, I shouldn't say that, but, um, I think of kind of classic Alberta sheep hunting, guys like um there's a there's an author who's interestingly enough is more of a or or equal parts 
hunting outfitter, um, equal parts, um, sort of naturalist and photographer, but way back in the, I, I believe between the thirties to the fifties in Southern Alberta, a guy named Andy Russell, and he's written a few books that are among some of my favorite hunting books, but he was one of the first guys to see, um, you know, uh, a landscape change through, um, different resource extraction programs that were happening and hunting, you know, be impacted by that. And so he took it upon himself to take photography gear into the mountains while he was doing these outfitting trips or scouting, um, in the summer. And, uh, he had, he just has a great set of books. Uh, Horns in the High Country is one of my favorites, but for a couple of reasons. And one of them is because, of course, it's in the Rockies of Alberta, but also his his vision at the time when he wrote it was that what's happening here from a industrial perspective is changing the way that these animals move and is changing the way that I get to experience the wilderness. Um, and he was able to write about that really eloquently and, and not really have a, you know, have a strong position on it, but just, he made those observations. He made those observations with his camera gear, which if you think about it, you know, 70 years ago compared to what's available as far as photography and film equipment. Now it's just astounding that he would, you know, take yeah. that stuff <laughs> into the field and rolls of film. He talks about rolls of the film and, and, uh, and these expeditions and shooting a mule deer for meat to continue on his <laughs> quest of, of filming. And, uh, anyways, so that, so back to your question, that throwback guy or gal that did it, old school horse train, just tougher, tougher than, uh, than anybody that I know, uh, and doing it with jeans and flannel and wall tents and just, not the level of equipment technology that's available out there. You just know that they had some rough nights on the mountain. Um, so I, I like that side of it and that literature. And then, um, you know, as a kid had, uh, life at full draw by Chuck Adams under my bed. We had a hard copy of that. And then the other one was Cam Haynes. Um, I believe his first book was Backcountry bow hunting. Okay. I think it was something like that two hard copies under my bed and, you know, just reading about, um, you know, Chuck, Chuck, uh, had his quest for the North American 29 and just adventure bow hunting at, at a time that a lot of people, um, you know, just weren't, weren't attempting a lot of those hunts. And so that was really interesting to me. And then, and then a lot of great friends over the years that have made, um, that, that we look up to that are a little bit longer than the teeth, but guys like Jack Frost who um, had the first grand slam of the bow and, and Tom Hoffman who was right after him and just hearing the coolest thing about visiting with those guys and you'll go to the wild sheep foundation and, and sit down at a table and there'll be an empty seat and you'll look over and Oh, there's Jack Frost and there's Tom Hoffman. And these guys have, have done it right. And yeah. they're so open and willing and interested in chatting with you and sharing stories. And as those stories start to come to the surface, the coolest thing that I've been just so lucky to be able to do is hunt some of the same areas and hearing about, you know, Alberta and eighties hunting in November for bighorn sheep of the bow and hearing some of those stories and saying, yeah, I've been, I've been on that mountain. I've been to that trailhead and thinking about these guys were doing it before I was even born mm -hmm. and doing it without range finders and w you know, without any, any quality equipment, um, I always think that that's just, it's just cool to be, you're a thread in a 
greater fabric of of history uh, and a very small thread, but you you feel really a part of that. And um, when you get to hunt some of those places, and even just on a broader scope, you feel a part of that. Um, what it is to be human in that you're hunting as a hunter, uh, maybe differently than they did it, you know, hundreds of years ago, but uh, it's still the same basic concept. Yeah. I, I love history personally. And I, I, for a lot of the same reasons you just said, you know, I think if you read any history about, you know, specifically like the West, it, it just is humbling because of how damn tough those people were. And no matter what I do or how, you know, if I ever start feeling like, Hey, maybe I'm, maybe I'm kind of tough. All you have to do is read, a history book and you realize you're not, but then it also makes experiences richer. You know, like, like you mentioned, you can, you go to these areas and you know that, you know, some of these old school guys had hunted there and you're part of that. And, um, I can't, I can't recommend people reading history enough because it, on, on so many levels, it just makes, makes things more, it, it checks the ego and makes experiences more rich, <laughs> which is always good. Um, oh, totally, totally agree. So you, at age 24, you, you had taken all four species with a bow and that, you know, that's a, that's a huge deal. And so what did, you know, what, what do you look for now? Because I, I would imagine, you know, obviously you're, you're focused more on process than goals, but you've kind of pretty early on checked off a lot of the, the things that people spend, you know, their life trying to accomplish. So now when you go on a hunt, wh- what is your goal? I mean, what are you looking for in an, in an animal? Even though we, you shouldn't have goals, it's all process. And we can have a disclaimer there. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, and keeping in mind too, um, you know the the to use the word accolade or achievement or goal. That's 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 yeah one thing that I've been super lucky to be able to do. But um, it really just started out as hey, I'm going hunting with my dad and brother, and that's yeah. what those guys are doing. That's what I want to do. And it hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, it's evolved, and and I've been really lucky to hunt with some just fantastic people, and I was talking about this the other day, but just how hunting spurs on and forges such strong, you know, a lot of the time, lifelong friendships. And so that has been such a, huge part of hunting to me is trying to do it with people um, that I either want to get to know or happen to have the stars aligned to be able to share a trip together. And so that's something that I look for in in weighing what I may or may not be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all limited on time. We only get so many days and so many hunting seasons um, before we can't do it anymore. And the people component and the way that hunting brings you to interesting people um, is something that it just keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And we just got back from Patagonia hunting red stag down there and doing a film project and shooting a bunch of photos on the hunting and fishing and wing shooting side of things. But just a couple of friends that we've met down there that, uh, they really are some of the most generous people. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They'll want you to come and travel and stay and see their culture and eat their food and go hunting with them and stay as long as you want and give you a bed and really roll out the red carpet. It's just phenomenal. And I think that um, I, di- I don't personally know of of a activity like that that, that has such a common language mm-hmm. and 
And I've just seen that happen, whether going over to Spain and hunting with a friend over there, or down Argentina or New Zealand or Alaska or wherever. You meet all these people, and you just have such an unspoken commonality as a hunter, and especially bow hunting. And so that's such a part of it. Um, and, and so I'm off base on your question a little bit of what am I looking for now, but no, that makes sense. It is, it is just, it is, it does. I mean, a, a animal sitting on your wall or the, the meat in the freezer and, and whether it's a 39 inch ram or a 40 inch ram or all those things are all great little goals to have and, and great outcomes of the, of the process. But really they're just reminders and they're just reminders of that time that you shared with those people. And, and sometimes if it is by yourself, you're doing a solo hunt, it's a reminder of, of what you went through. And I think again, hunting just, just brings that out in you and your relationships. Um, and also you just go into the mountains one way and you, you never come out the same person. They're all, it's always changing you and, and evolving you and pushing you. And even if it's just, 10 days that you had to go out there and think, um, it, 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 it changes you. And so, um, yeah, those are all, all parts of the puzzle. And it, it honestly is, has become a little bit less about the animal. And, and, and I think that, um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just, it's just been such a, such a gift to be able to have this activity, this passion, this hobby, whatever you want to call it, draw me in and take me to these places to meet these people, to experience um, things that I just wouldn't normally have, have done and, and looked up um, you know, on a travel website and said, oh, I'm going to go to Argentina and, uh, and go on this trip. It's, it's, these, it's drinking mate, which is a, it's a herbal drink they drink in South America. Yep. It's like a really strong tea and it's drinking mate with a gaucho and a tin shack who's lived his whole life there and looks over this estancia after all the sheep and, and cows and doesn't speak English, but going in there and watching him boil the water on his open fire and roll up a cigarette and sit there and visit with him in my horrible, broken Spanish. <laughs> I know the feeling. See, <laughs> right. <laughs> and seeing those things that you just, just wouldn't see in, um, you just get off the beaten path in such a way and in a literal way and in a, in a, in just a emotional and spiritual way as well that, uh, I just can't quite think of another thing quite like it. Do you think that hunting taps into some part of your DNA, part of our human DNA that just isn't really tapped into nowadays? Cause I, I'm not a, I'm not a massive big game hunter. I, you know, I'd love to do more and more of it, but I, I, I am a, I do do a lot of reading about natural history and I just really feel like it, it's in our DNA. And you mentioned these relationships you form with people. And I don't think that's um, um, just by chance. I mean, I think we're, you're out there doing something that we're meant to do as a species and that we've done for tens and tens and tens, hundreds of thousands of years. And um, you're just tapping into that. I mean, does that sound crazy or do you agree? hundred percent agree. Yeah. And the, the, occurrence that really cemented that for me was over the last few years one of the and i should have mentioned too one of the um really nice gifts that has been given back to me in in terms of hunting is being able to um help people get involved in hunting especially bow hunting and seeing people close friends 
go from not being being able to draw a bow back to you know hitting bullseyes and and hopefully being with them when they harvest their first animal with a bow that part of it has just been so cool and i think that 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 concept of we are meant to do this has has really um exposed itself to me in that i go hunting with these people and to watch them move about the forest and and yeah i always tell them they're asking how 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 do i know when to draw my bow or when to take a step or what do i you know trying to like wrap their mind around this this if this happens what do i do when really there is an element of experience no question but there is such a level of follow your instincts that's cool follow your gut and to see them the light bulb go off and that it's kind of giving me goosebumps right now but to see that (laughs) um, happen and, and witness firsthand, um, that, Hey, your, your instincts are probably right nine times out of 10. And so I can tell you exactly what to do. Um, however, everything's going to change as soon as that bull bugles and takes five steps to the right. And now all the chips are on the table and you either have to draw your bow or you have to stand there frozen and let them walk out of your life. And um, if you make those mistakes, they will haunt you into not making them again. And, and, <laughs> and that is that is another part of it that's just such a uh, uh, cool thing to see happen. And so I think you're absolutely right at it in that that is a part of our DNA and that people that try it for the first time and go, oh, man, I'm, I'm just never going to be able to figure it out or I, I – I didn't grow up doing it. My dad didn't do it. And I haven't been able to hunt sheep since I was 14 years old and go on all these hunts. You're actually better equipped than you think. And that just comes with, you know, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years of people running all over the place and chasing things. And, um, so I think I've really seen it and I do believe it. Yeah. And I think that team aspect is huge because you think of us as a species, we're not that strong. I mean, we're, we're fair, we're relatively weak, but our, our biggest, um, one of our biggest advantages is that we can team up. And so that probably accounts for how you just, you form these really close bonds with these people very, very quickly because otherwise, I mean, in, in the old days you had to do it as a team. There, there wasn't any sort of, you know, there were very few solo hunters back then I would guess. So um, I love that kind of stuff. I could, I could read books about that all day. Um, so for somebody who is relatively new to hunting or wants to get into hunting, but doesn't, doesn't really know anybody that does it, doesn't have any, um, you know, family members that, 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 that have done it over the years. I mean, what would be your advice to somebody? The reason I ask is because I was actually emailing with somebody who listens to the podcast, who was asking that same kind of question. And so what, what would be your advice to somebody like that? I think we we have a lot of access to information with with the internet, with forums, with Google Earth to be able to go in there and, and e scout and learn mountains and all that access to information, which is a huge positive. Um, and I think that I would definitely recommend tapping into those resources. Um, but I would also recommend there's no substitute for experience and trying and failing on your own. And so. If you think that there's a time that you want to start bow hunting or hunting, um, the time is right now to do it. And so the, the recommendation that I would make is um, just like any other activity that you're trying to learn how to do is just 
start it. The first step is starting it. The first step is is rolling down to the archery shop, making that uncomfortable introduction, and saying, "Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, please, you know, give me the give me the ten cent tour and help me start this this thing." And and be careful because you're gonna you're entering into um, a territory that you can't really get out of. You're gonna go in and start. You're gonna draw a bow back and shoot an arrow and go. Oh wow, this is yeah, this is pretty damn cool. And you're not gonna be able to go back to um, whatever you did with all your weekends, vacation time, and disposable income from August first to <laughs> December first. So I would warn you with that caveat. But, no more golf. Um, that's right. It's over. <laughs> but um, no, I, I think I think let me synthesize this down. I think um, there's a lot of great people out there. There's a lot of just really warm. Um, folks that want to help share what they've been able to do with you or um, get you off off to the to the races in the right way. And so uh, I would say get involved in however you can get involved. Go to your local archery shop and and establish a relationship there. Join the 3D League. Take some lessons. Um, really get involved on a community level. And, and on the other side of the coin, there's fantastic conservation organizations probably in your area that are doing um you know banquets and pint nights and all these great um gathering events such as the backcountry hunters and anglers it seems like is just exploding wild sheep foundation um you know elk foundation mule deer foundation whatever the area that you live in that might have one of those uh agencies in place get involved in it and you'll just meet people that that are so willing so much more willing to help or have a conversation with you than you actually think and so i think if i'm if i'm making a recommendation it would be getting involved on that level because i think there is so much information on the internet that it can be overwhelming and there's it's hard it's hard to start and so i think it comes with that level of finding the mentor or the guide uh metaphorically that that can shepherd you through uh how to synthesize all this this information overload and and get it started and people are willing to help yeah and i think the work that you're doing and guys like charles post and tyler sharp with modern huntsman i think that kind of changing the historical image of hunting you know for probably the last 50 years or 50 years up until about 10 years ago, hunting, I think had been seen as kind of a thing for middle-aged white guys to do, but because of the the film and and photography work that you're doing and, you know, you contribute to modern huntsmen and creating this, this new image of, of what it really is like or what it, what it's like now. And it's a much more welcoming um, environment, I think. And, and it comes, it's much more open. And I think that's, that's very accurate. Um, And so I'm just glad guys like you are out there doing that because, it's a, uh, it's a real service and it's drawing people in. I mean, I, I, Ty, I know Tyler gets, gets constant, um, messages from people who've read modern huntsman and, and want to get involved in some way. So, um, that's awesome. your, your, uh, your article and photos and modern huntsman were really awesome, by the way. I love those. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for the kind words and associating me with those two guys. I'm, I'm, uh, proud to be a part of the team if i'm even on the bench or filling out the water bottle we'll be on the team with those guys <laughs> you're definitely on the team man um <laughs> so uh, speaking of conservation i want to talk a little bit about that because i do some work in land conservation and most of mine is on private land but you know obviously a lot of these 
working ranches and, and big private landscapes depend on public lands in one way or the other. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what public lands, you know, specifically, um, I guess here in the U S have meant to you over your, you know, in your hunting and in your work and kind of the importance of protecting those places? For sure. I think that it is the, it has been said a million times, but it's the greatest resource that uh the country has and and being a canadian and living in canada same goes for us it's classified a little bit differently but um you know it is it is something that everybody can take advantage of and um i think that because the landscape that that we're in and that we've been in um it is it is getting harder and harder for people to um sort of break away from a reality that is maybe augmented or experiences that are highly focused on, um, technology and, and a computer screen or a phone or, a you know, anything that, that isn't what's outside. Um, and so public lands are, are, are that stronghold, are that foundation for anybody to be able to go do whatever it is that you want to do. And it's such a, it's such a um, just an integral part of being able to say that um, you know, as a child, as a middle-aged person, as an older person, throughout their life, you can continue to always go back to those public places and have those experiences that are going to make you want to protect it and they're going to make you want to be involved. And so, I think it's a feedback loop that perpetuates itself. And, and that's what's happened for me. It's the the more that you experience it for yourself, uh, the more that you um, want to and be a part of it. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think I'm trying to. It's it's kind of a hard thing to kind of put your finger on and say this is what it means to me. But it is such a uh, it's such a big part of of all the cool shit that I've gotten to do. I mean, really, I mean that's it wouldn't happen without it um, you know, on the hunting side and the filming side. And so. Um, I really think that, uh, it's just crucial. And I think it's going to be, uh, I maybe spent too much time thinking about this stuff lately, but I think it's going to be a huge part of this next generation that, like I mentioned before, though, there's kids growing up now that have, have never not, uh, lived with a, with access to a, a smartphone, um, that's crazy or an iPad, you know, or an iPad or, or, you know, that, that's what's happening. That's, that's the the generation that's coming up. And so, um, for me having the, the ability to say, Hey, you can go out hopefully minutes from your house, if not, you know, a little bit more and, and breathe in fresh air and hopefully see some animals or some plant life. Um, that's going to make you think about, uh, this great big wide universe and world that, that an adventure that we call life in a, in a more meaningful way than you will ever get, uh, by the warm glow of of your of your iPhone 10, um, and so that, that's just a big part of it. I think you know now and really moving forward into the future. Yeah, I completely agree with all that. And I just finished a book um, a few weeks ago called The Nature Fix. It's by an author oh, cool. named Florence Williams, and she kind of goes through and explains 
all the scientific research about why being outdoors is so good for you. Um, and it's, I enjoyed it because I already knew that, but I didn't have all the scientific um, backup to to prove it. But it's really, right. for people who are interested in that. I think it's um, it's a great book to read, and I think it's more and more important nowadays. With um, like you said, with all this technology, it's just uh, it's just insane. Um, one more question about conservation, and um, if you don't want to answer it, we can we can edit this out. But <laughs> I'm sure you've thought about it. But what what are your thoughts on the reintroduction of wolves? Um, I know that's a controversial subject, um, and it, it, it historically is hunters have not been, um, on board or, or as a, as a group have not been on board with, with the reintroduction of wolves because of elk populations, at least here in the U S. Um, what, have you thought at all about that? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I just thought, thought about it a fair amount. I think I'm not super educated on, every side of the issue. But I think, um, you know, to speak a, a little bit about perhaps my own personal thoughts. Um, I think that we live in, in, in a, you can't separate wild animals, um, from people. You just can't, we, we share the same, um, habitat. We share the same landscape. We share the same resources. We have ranches where elk live and, um, you know, it's just so hard to just delineate and say, okay, we're going to package up this, this, this thing called wilderness and, and put, put it in a box and not have the spillover effects, which is actually happening because people are continuing to expand further and further into these wilderness Mm -hmm. areas. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that the reintroduction of wolves is, is a, is an issue that comes from trying to, um, have a, an apex predator back in the ecosystem, and in Yellowstone, it's it's unchecked. Obviously, no hunting in in the park. And um, the other thing is, these an- wolves are hard to hunt. Wolves are the reason that they've been able to get knocked back to you know at risk levels is because um, you know by and large, probably the ranching community and other people have been able to trap and poison and and you know hunt them at a level of, of, you know, exterminating them. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a population that is hard to hunt, um, in, by a traditional standpoint has a litter of pups, not, you know, like an elk calf will have one or two calves. Um, at the very most, you know, you can have these populations of wolves just exploding and, um, and relatively unchecked. And so it's just a different ballgame. And I think that I'm, I'm for, um, wolves being a part of, of an ecosystem that is hopefully as close to, um, natural as, as it was before people showed up. But the reality is, is that it's never going to be, it's never going to be, you know, quote unquote natural because humans are, are irrevocably impacting, um, the landscape and the animals. And so I think having a, a comprehensive management program, for wolves, um, is something that's still really challenging, um, because of the challenges that I mentioned in, in terms of, you just can't issue X number of hunting permits for wolves, um, and expect a return and a harvest rate, you know, similar to ungulates. Ungulates are prey species that are adapted to be, um, have a different set of skills and, and apex predators are 
highly intelligent and good at staying alive and really adaptable to hunting pressure. And so um, I think that overall, I, I know that there's a, a restorative approach with wolves that has a net positive um, in, in terms of the long term. Um, sorry, my phone's in here. In terms of the long term balance of an ecosystem and moving those prey species like you know elk and back when bison were more prevalent in the american west moving them around and keeping them from um, absolutely decimating water sources and all the young foliage and and willows and and birch trees and poplars around that water source and maybe beating it into a point where it's no longer a a, a water source uh, and so I, I know that's one example of of the net positive of animals like wolves is is having that movement of restoring that that population to be more of a of a of of a of a, of a natural um, prey species that that continues to roam around and be moved around and spread out the pressure of of um, of their feeding cycle on all the things that they eat and so. I think that there is a balance there and I think that we just haven't figured out what that is and, and haven't been able to manage them, um, you know, in an effective way. And so I think that that's probably where a lot of the, the backlash and the, you know, wolves smoke a pack a day and, and that sort of mentality comes from, from the hunting community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that remains to be seen how that, how that all sort of shakes out. And, and, and I understand that, um, if you're making your living in, in the cattle business or, um, you have a doll sheep area in the Northwest territories and every wolf is going to every single pack of wolves that you see walking around, um, that, you know, they might eat a sheep a week or whatever the stat is that, that, that's a, you know, potentially a $20,000 sheep that is coming out of your bottom line and you're, you're, you know, a steward of the landscape, but you're also running a business. And I, and I guess I realize that there's just a juxtaposition, you know, juxtaposition, in terms of that that person or or group that perhaps wants it to to be a more balanced ecosystem with apex predators, but also there's a bottom line and there's mm-hmm. a there's a financial impact. Um, and so it, it, it's a it's a challenging issue. And I, I guess I would say, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's going to kind of come to fruition. I hope with a more, um, comprehensive management plan that's well thought out and, and, uh, is actually effective because I think it's just, it's just challenging to consider. It's not apples to apples when you, when, when you're comparing, you know, undulate species to, to wolves in terms of hunter impact and hunter harvest. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that because it's definitely a hot issue and it, for some reason, you know, it just, it can really set people off. But I think the only way to find a solution that, that first of all, there is no right answer. Um, I think it's, it's a challenging totally. issue and there's a big gray area in there, but the only way to figure out anything is to talk about it. And so, um, I, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. Um, I know you've, uh, you're, you've got a million things going on, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I have some kind of quick questions that I run through with most of my guests and, um, it's been fun to compare the answers. And so can I run through those with you real quick and then I'll let you get back to your day. Oh, please do. Cool. Um, so what are your favorite books related to the West? And it can be the American West, the Canadian Rockies, 
um, or just favorite books in general, any books that have influenced your life in a, in a positive way? Oh, um, mentioned it earlier that horns in the high country, Mm -hmm. Andy Russell, probably lesser known, awesome book. Um, geez, I always, (laughs) uh, it's, it's funny. It's been, it's popped up a lot in my lifetime. There's a book called the alchemist, uh, which isn't a hunting book, Yeah, but it's a, uh, yeah. And we, it's pretty special and important to us. And anyone that is a close friend has probably heard us reference it or, uh, or maybe received a copy from us. Um, then, Oh, what else? Maybe related back to hunting. I read, I started getting into the old Africa books, the capstick, um, death in the long grass and death in the silent places and, and those books. Um, just cause it's so different, you know, mm-hmm. just thinking about hunting, man eating lions and, and leopards in Brazil with a spear and, um, you know, Siberian tigers and, and, and tigers in India that have killed four or 500 people. Uh, that, that side of it and his writing style is just so, it, it is similar to what we referenced earlier. Just people were just way, way tougher <laughs> Yep, back then. Uh, so I've liked that. And, uh, oh man, I, I probably the kick, I guess that I've been on lately in terms of books has been more up the, uh, self-improvement and, uh, and, um, you know, sort of business, not even business, but just life, um, goal oriented books that are trying to make you be your best self and a better person. So I'm sure, uh, I would be remiss not to mention, um, pretty popular author named Tim Ferriss who's, who's coming out with a lot of books yep. about different successful people. And I guess I like that stuff and it's, it's maybe a bit hokey and, and I know some people, um, are like, yeah, you know, Tim's kind of got his, his way, but, um, I guess he just does a really good job because of his, his following that he's built to be able to, to be able to just get interesting people. So that's what I'm after is not necessarily the author and his perspective, even though he's been highly successful, uh, it's, it's just a guess that he's able to get. Um, mm-hmm. so I like, like his podcast and, and like his books. Um, I do too. I do too. I mean, and you know, I think he rubs people the wrong way, uh, every now and then yeah. just something about the way he talks. I don't, I don't know, but I, <laughs> yeah. I really, I mean, if it weren't for Tim Ferriss, I, I doubt that I would have this podcast cause I listened to his so much. And I thought, I bet I could do something like that. And I, I meet all these interesting people through my work and, you know, so a lot of these questions I ask at the end, they're a direct ripoff from Tim Ferriss. <laughs> But he's, I, he's great. I, no, that's great. No, I love it. Um, I thought that maybe, yeah, you, you and I love, I love the podcast format too. And I think that it's nice. You have some, some flexibility and just some foundational stuff to go back to. And so, so um, yeah, hats off. You're an awesome, if you can pull some sort of semblance of, of coherence out of the last hour that I've been talking, then you're a fantastic podcast. <laughs> no, this is awesome. Um, so you're a, you're obviously a filmmaker. Are there any films or documentaries that have been impactful to you that you, that you really love? We really like this series called chess table and it, um, just, it brings out the unique human stories of chefs who are super competitive and just type a and wired in a very, unique way and um to see their story and the human element of of what they've done and just um the the level of photography that they've been able to achieve showing i mean everybody just likes watching awesome food 
shows too so there's that element to it but it's just they did a good job of bringing to light these like interesting human stories so we've been consuming that and it kind of influenced us like how to dig the next little layer deeper um in terms of of film and story yeah chefs are chefs are crazy as hell they're i mean they're like they're like lunatic artists and they they're very 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 interesting people and i don't i'm not a foodie or anything like that but if i ever hear interviews with chefs like on podcasts i'll listen every time because they're they're such interesting people and um I would never have expected I would say something like that a few years ago, but it, I'm I'm completely on board. It's there. You can learn a lot from those people. I think absolutely, and and super artistic uh, from the, the the creative side, and then also just a diligent level of of. There's just so much work that goes into oh, yeah. developing that craft and being able to um, build something that uh, you know you have you have this creative side and then you have this cool um you know business sort of uh leadership side of the being able to build this because you know it's one thing if he or she's a great chef um but but if they can't have the opportunity to develop a, a platform or a restaurant or a food truck that's successful when, when you know 80 or 90 percent of these things fail within the first year or two um then nobody gets to eat their food except mm-hmm. except their family so that side of it is really interesting yeah, it's a tough business. I used to do commercial real estate, and the stat was that one out of one out of ten restaurants will still be open after eighteen months. And wow. uh, so, just getting being able to lease a space for a restaurant is a huge challenge. Um, so, what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that could be a scary experience, it could be a funny experience, just a memorable experience. You've had so many. I would guess it's hard to choose one. But is there is there one kind of powerful experience that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, so many. I would say. I think. Um, hmm. Well, I, I'll 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 tell one just because it's recent memory, and it was on a solo hunt. I was um, doing a sheep hunt uh, in the late season, and I was. Uh, it was actually in in the unlimited units in in Montana, which are over the counter sheep. Mm-hmm. units but they come with a catch that uh once the quota is filled your uh the season's closed so you have to call in every 24 hours and check and make sure the quota is still open or the unit that you're hunting is still open mm-hmm. and and the reason that it works is there's just such low densities of sheep and so they can keep it knowing that they might harvest one two or three rams in a very small population but but these sheep are sprinkled throughout the Beartooth mountains that oh, a large majority of it is over 10,000 feet and uh, ha- comes with a host of challenges when you're doing it in mid to late November. And I was back uh, by myself and uh, and snowshoeing around on top of this mountain. And uh, I was uh, had this hunt plan or I was going to go back and check these spots and um, didn't end up seeing anything, which is about par for the course. And so I was coming out and... I tried to take a little shortcut and walk off the spine and it was just really, it it was basically about if you put your two feet together, it was about, you know, it was about two boots wide, I guess maybe it was about a foot wide, this little spine. And I was actually following these goat tracks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, well, these goats can do it. I can do it, which (laughs) is definitely not a theory that you should apply. (laughs) But, 
uh, I was following this spine and it, it changed from solid ground to, to just stacked rocks with snow on top of it. So you couldn't really tell if it was solid ground or just snow built up between a few rocks. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So I was kind of coming down and I was, and it was getting dark and I was right at that point where I'm, I'm, I've gone down far enough where I'm asking myself, okay, am I going to turn around and climb up and go around the way I should have gone, which is the way that I hiked in, or am I going to try and cheat uh, my way and take this little shortcut? And I was riding this ridge, you know, cowboy style, if you want to call it that. It was just, I was, it kind of scared myself to the point of I was sitting on top of it and kind of putting my hands out in front and shuffling my butt. Oh yeah. I've done that plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, w- one little shuffle at a time. And, uh, and I was starting to punch through some of those, those snow pockets. And, you know, I was really kind of scared because I was, I'd gotten myself to that point where, Oh man, if I go down this next little, little pitch, I don't know if I can come back up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this, if this ridge just totally drops off. I, it's getting dark. I can't camp here. And so I, I had this little bit of a moment of panic and, uh, I just tried to steady myself and think about what to do. And I ended up packing up and, and turning around and just climbing out of there and, and getting back on top and going, Holy shit, I kind of really scared myself there, especially by myself. Oh yeah. Um, and, and yeah, if my, hopefully my wife never listens to this, but it was, <laughs> serious drop off on both sides. And I guess I'm not really an adrenaline junkie. I don't jump out of planes or, or jump off cliffs when I go snowboarding. I just cruise the groomers and, and drink beer at the end of the day. But, um, that was a, a pretty cool experience, just pushing yourself a little bit and, and then coming back. Um, and, and on the way out, I, I, and yeah, the story goes on and on, but I, I, um, ended up throwing my headlamp on and hike up the normal way. And I kind of came around this corner and I was following the same footsteps that I had taken on the way in. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, you know, you, your headlamps down, you're looking at the footsteps, you're just trudging along going, Oh man, it's going to be another, you know, six or seven hours to get the hell out of here. And yep. it's Sunday night and I'm over it. And, uh, and watching my footsteps, all of a sudden my footsteps disappear and I kind of pan up to this big basin and I realized that the reason my footsteps are no longer there is this huge avalanche had oh. totally like ripped in the time that I'd climbed up and gone over the next mountain, which was probably three days or two and a half days um, earlier. You know, this huge avalanche, and I wasn't obviously there when the avalanche happened, but I could see my you know foot foot tracks wiped out over there for from two or three days earlier. I think about three days. And so that was another little, and that happened within two hours of the, of cowboying down this ridge. And, and so, uh, I was like, Oh man, that's okay, cool. I'm going to not go this way and go back around and, um, end up, (laughs) end up trucking out all the way out, uh, getting back to the trail and, you know, have that little adrenaline pump of, okay, I, I made it out. And I remember getting back to my truck and, um, it's late late it's late 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 and uh i ended up having a flat tire in my truck when i got back <laughs> oh man so i must have had a, a slow leak or something in it and so i guess why that story is meaningful is not an epic uh conquering of the mountain and uh and 
you know, epic, epic story of, of success, but it was, it, I guess it jumped into my mind as a meaningful experience, um, in the last couple of years, because it was just a, just a reminder of we're only on this earth for so long. And, and, uh, and at any moment, all this can be taken away from, from me or anybody. And so, uh, it was, it was, it was really cool to be driving back and, uh, and, and going, okay, uh, that was a couple of close calls all within a short amount of time. And one, uh, you know, I need to be careful and, and, and mitigate risk as best I can, which I, I always tell people to do, um, doing different gear seminars and, and tips about backcountry hunting. I always carry a, a DeLorme in reach in my left hand waist belt pocket of my pack. And I always carry a quick clot, just like a military, designed a, a sort of this like fast rip package that you can quickly duct tape yep. the duct tape on your trekking pole around a wound or something like that um in my other waist belt pocket and so my wife and family knows if the worst comes to worse i fall and and i puncture my femoral artery or i break a leg or slice myself with a knife uh i'm hitting that sos and i've got some um ability to to, to triage some of the the, the wound that I might have. And, and they know that. So that gives them peace of mind and, and that gives me peace of mind. But, um, so number one was, you know, reminding myself that I need to be careful out there. And, and also number two, uh, hunting as in life, there is, um, there is no way of predicting what's going to happen next. And, uh, we don't know when this is all going to end. And so to try to just, really, really make the most of it and, uh, and live it up, um, in the sense that, um, you know, it's just a gift to be out there. It's mm-hmm. just a gift to be in the mountains. And so I think that I guess at the time that hunt is, is really hard and you just don't see a lot of animals. And I was kind of maybe, maybe I was grumbling a bit to myself going, okay, I want to get out of here. I'm over it. And I came down that ridge and, and, and had that little scare and then turned myself around and then had the, saw the avalanche and then maybe the flat tire was like the last little, little bit of the universe, you know, hitting me over the head um, <laughs> in case I didn't get it the first two times, but to say, Hey, you're, you're actually, you're actually really lucky to be able-bodied and have the time and, and job and, and resources to be able to go do these things. So, you know, you better fucking enjoy it. Yeah. And, and so, um, that, 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 I was just, yeah, super meaningful. And, and I think that there's little reminders like that, all the time. And, um, maybe, maybe when you're hunting in the mountains, there, there's more, or you're more receptive to them. Um, I'm not really sure, but I I do believe that, uh, that, that, that that the signs or the omens are out there. If you, um, if you kind of have your eyes and ears perked up to, um, just those, just those moments to remember that, uh, we're, we're all pretty lucky to be able to do this stuff. I think that's that's awesome advice and um, very very wise to be able to find that you know meaningful advice out of just kind of um, not not just these super intense experiences but I mean that that was obviously the one you described as intense but being able to pull those out of daily experiences that's that's the key to life I think um, well thank you so much for taking all the time how can people connect with you online so I'm on Instagram just my my last name, which is Foss, F-O-S-S, man, just how it sounds. The number eight, so Foss Man 8 is my Instagram handle. Kind of keep up to date of 
what I'm up to hunting, fishing, and media wise. And then our website is foss.media, no.com, just foss.media. Um, so usually updating different projects that we're working on there a little bit, or you can just see um, what we're up to. But uh, yeah, trying to trying to keep the uh, social media beast fed, I guess, but also <laughs> not, not try to spend too much time on it. I'm not as active. I try to, you know, update the photography as much as I can, but, um, yeah, try not to devote too much of my life of, of, uh, with that stuff, but, um, always love getting messages and emails from people, um, asking your questions, hunting tips, sharing stories, sending pictures, um, ha- have been just, yeah, it's just such a, a lucky thing sometimes that people say, Hey, I listened to your podcast and, uh, and it was awesome. And I have this question or just, or just, Hey, thumbs up. Thanks. Love your stuff and, and keep it up. Um, it, it's just really cool. And, uh, and I appreciate that, um, so much too. So you can, you can find me there and, uh, and yeah, if you see me at the sheep show or, or a trailhead, if, if, if you want, uh, I'll buy you a beer and, uh, we can share it and tell some hunting stories. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.